it was the year 1758, and European astronomers had spent months scanning the night skies for any sign of a special celestial visitor. Several decades prior, English astronomer Edmund Halley had proposed a comet that he personally observed in 1682 was in orbit around the Sun. In fact, he suggested that all comets were, in fact, in orbit around the Sun. At the time, it was well known among astronomers that all of the known planets, including the Earth, were in an orbit around the Sun. But some still thought that comets were visitors from somewhere else, ghostly apparitions that hurtled through our cosmic neighborhood, passing by the Earth, then whizzing off into outer space, never to be seen or heard from again. Halley predicted that the comet he saw in 1682 would return in 1758. Throughout that year, though, no one had seen any sign of it. Halley himself had died more than a decade prior. It was now Christmas Eve, with just days to go before the end of the year 1758, when an amateur astronomer named Johann Palich was scanning the frigid winter skies, taking advantage of the long nights in the month of December. Palich had been raised to take over his family farm by an extremely strict German stepfather, but in secret throughout his childhood, he had been studying astronomy. At age 21, Palich learned Latin, a dead language to most Europeans. It was now the language of science. The home on his family farm contained thousands of his handwritten partial copies of renowned scientific publications, books that had been too expensive for him to purchase himself. It was on that night, Christmas Eve of 1758, when Palich first glimpsed the return of the famous comet in the skies of Earth. According to some accounts, he spotted it with the naked eye, without the aid of a telescope. His sighting proved to be the greatest Christmas gift of all to astronomers around the world, confirming once and for all that the same comet was indeed returning every 76 years, and it would come to be known as Halley's Comet. Welcome to Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant. Join us in January as we explore the celestial objects known as comets and asteroids, the science, the superstition, and the threat that they might pose to every inhabitant of the planet Earth. And today, we hope you'll join us for a very special after-talk with my producer Blake and I for a year in review as we discuss where Universe University has been and where we hope to go in the future. again i'm joined by my producer blake howdy i feel like uh 
the silent guy in the room now, just making sure that everything sounds good. He's often behind the scenes in all of the wonderful interviews that uh, we've done. And occasionally, uh, I guess during our UFOs after talk with Connor Blunt, uh, you were there to, to join in the discussion. But very often it's just myself there uh, interviewing some of our uh, some of our guests, and we've been playing with the after talk format as you guys have witnessed or as you guys have heard in recent episodes. And uh, I don't know, I'm I kind of go back and forth. I've always enjoyed uh, talking at length with uh, my producer Blake here and having casual, informal conversations. Uh, and yet, at the same time, I'm very pleased, as we hope uh, you are, with the caliber of guests we've been able to get in uh, recent months. That is a good segue into the first part of my uh, memorandum and what I wanted to get into. Um, I just like the cool guests that we've had the opportunity to have on our show over the last year. Uh, can I ask if you had a personal favorite? I really liked having Vera here. Uh, I think Vera mm. was... Uh, she added a lot of, of knowledge... And uh, I think it's really nice to have someone who um, is so technical in her her knowledge base and what she knows. Um, it's also cool that she currently works for NASA, so we're kind of getting to hear of like the new blood that is moving up into into NASA. Yeah, perhaps she can join us again to talk about the trajectory of her career. But she was she was a student and presented with me at the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder. And then she talked about her internship at the Green Bank Observatory and then went on to do a uh, internship at NASA, I think uh, Goddard Space Flight Center more specifically. So I don't know if she currently works for NASA, just to be oh, okay. com completely clear. But, My misunderstanding. Um, but for, uh, for such a young person has uh, an immense body of knowledge and certainly uh, an already impressive uh, resume and it was uh, she was actually our our first guest yes uh, first guest ever in the history of the program and uh, just really blew me away after having done a two-part episode on Mars feeling like oh, I, I'm pretty confident that I know I know enough about Mars mm -hmm. to uh, to do a good after talk and I think we both hopefully just sort of sat back and listened more than we spoke or more than we interjected for yes. for her. Um, and I think it's just, we've had a unique opportunity to just meet more people in this arena, probably more than what we would have met trying to do it on our own organically and just be able to meet a bunch of very interesting and brilliant minds in the space of space. In the space of space. Yeah. Absolutely. So I I wasn't quite sure how else you wanted to get into it. I can some other things that I thought we could go over just the uh the topics that we've had the opportunity to go over. So I wanted to get into the topics that we covered over the course of the last year of all of our episodes. Sounds great. Um starting with the very first one. And this one's nice because we also reach into it later on in talking about extraterrestrial life and and also communicating with extraterrestrial life. 
I want to interject that it's it's sort of an interesting uh, episode and an interesting discussion that we're having right now because it's sort of the year in review, but we've been doing uh, this program for longer than a year, and you actually had the idea of doing a one-year anniversary podcast where we had just the discussion we're having right now, but I was uh, very very strong advocate for and very insistent of addressing the topic of UFOs and alien visitation for uh, the month of October and the Halloween season and uh, and all of that. So we've actually been bringing you these episodes for longer than a year. And our first episode, in fact, was, uh, I want to say 2018, not 2019. Correct. In September. September. Yeah. September of 2018, we started. But yeah, that was... Uh, a presentation that I did uh, when ET calls for the uh, Fisk Planetarium that I, that I was very proud of, and we just kind of converted that uh, very quickly into a little uh, podcast. And I thought extraterrestrial life was a very tantalizing place to start. I think some might argue that a lot of that information was very basic, but then again, if you didn't know, if you didn't know anything about extraterrestrials or the possibilities for extraterrestrial life. Uh, more correctly put, then I would say that was a, a good place to start. And I actually had a friend, a good friend of mine, came to see that planetarium presentation. And she said, uh, when she walked in, she was like, I didn't know how you were going to do an hour about extraterrestrial life because we really haven't found any extraterrestrial life as far as I knew. So I didn't know what the hell you were going to talk about for <laughs> 60 minutes. And you've been able to find a way to talk about that for almost two and a half, three hours now <laughs> yeah. in the past, in the two episodes that you've done on it. That's true. Um, and then our, our next was our, our first mini-series into the journey to the moon, the missions that led to us landing on the moon. Yeah, the space race or the race to the moon. It's, it's hard to uh, differentiate which one is which. And I'm really happy that we did that because that was something that, that I wasn't quite sure how we would handle longer form episodes. And uh, I liked the way that that came out, that we broke it in and had basically a mini series, something that could be more palatable for people to be able to take part in. And it was interesting, too, in the preliminary stages of putting our little podcast together, I was talking to you, I was like, well, should we should we ensure that each episode is only one hour long? And you kind of said to me, like, no, it's not, this is not television. This is not radio. This is not a medium where we're really constrained by time. And you brought up to me uh, Dan Carlin, who does these wonderful uh, podcasts. And I think my my initial idea was to do, like, okay, well, then I'll just do a six-hour-long space race podcast. And I think that would have been um, a little bit too much. Which is funny because his, his, he just came out with another one probably a month ago for uh, World War II. And it's it's like the fourth part of like a five-part series, I think, that's all on World War II. And it was four hours about like everything that led into and the attack of Pearl Harbor. And that was it. Four hours. <laughs> That's incredible. That's incredible. Uh, of course, World War II was going on prior to Pearl Harbor, um, but that's only a couple of years. Yeah. And and uh, no disrespect intended to the great Dan Carlin. It would right. be amazing to have him as a guest on the program one day. But I think it's also a little bit like 
in the same way that uh, Martin Scorsese can do a three and a half hour long movie, uh, The Irishman, mm-hmm. about uh, organized crime and all and all that, that Martin Scorsese can can get away with that because he's Martin Scorsese. Dan Carlin can get away with that because mm-hmm. he's Dan Carlin. Whereas I like the idea of splitting up, uh, having multiple part episodes and splitting it up into sort of more palatable uh, sections. Well, the nice thing is, I think even within the episodes themselves, they kind of have acts in them that they will speak to, will will follow the, the character line, the character story of a certain person, a certain important person in this timeline. And we, that you kind of have these acts that follow those people. Indeed, so. yeah, and I appreciate you saying that, and you'll you'll notice that I didn't ask you what your favorite episode that we've done thus far uh, has has been, because uh, while you are an amazing editor, I'm largely writing and choosing the topics and things like that, so it seems a little bit uh, self-aggrandizing and self-serving and egotistical for me to be like, well, which of these episodes that I wrote did you like the most? I, d- I did almost want to make a, a category for this of like, your favorite, um, what would you say? Uh, My favorite episode? No, no. Um, your favorite story arcs. Because, like I said, each you, you do build like a, a story arc for in mm. an act of a certain person. Um, although I kind of have an idea of who you would select. Well, um, well, this will be fun. You can tell me who you think I would select, and then I can tell you who I would actually select, which might involve a little bit of thought on my part, because I don't know if I know off the top of my head who I would select. All these people throughout history captivate my imagination. Yeah. Um, I should wrote it down. Um, Certain episode or time period you were the thinking Elon of? Musk. Um, the, the Elon Musk episode? Yeah. Oh, oh, um... Oddly enough, it w- wouldn't be Elon Musk that I would exactly, select from, right, from that series, right. but Robert Zubrin. Robert Zubrin, yes. Who we would hope to have a, as a guest on the program someday, yes. who is this, I think, unsung hero of uh, space exploration and this uh, fierce, unwavering, unyielding advocate for uh, Mars exploration and has been since 1990 so really 30 years now I was surprised to see him they actually have interviews with him in the uh the the Mars mini series kind of like docu was it a National Geographic docu yeah. docu series that you were doing Yeah it's like a partial documentary of going to Mars partial kind of show thing it was very it was it's a fun watch the funny thing is you have a, a conversation at an office party about space exploration. Elon Musk's name comes up inevitably, but people probably wouldn't know who Robert Zubrin right. is. But if you watch a documentary made you know, any time in the last 10 years about uh, human exploration of Mars and the prospects for manned missions to Mars, you will inevitably see a clip of Robert Zubrin somewhere in there talking about uh, the importance of it. And he's very very intense and he's very when he testifies before congress it's almost like he's uh chiding members of congress as you would a small child saying like we have wasted so many opportunities and there's so much more we could be doing and shame on you for not uh taking greater initiative to spearhead this uh great opportunity for a manned mission to mars yeah 
Um, which leads us to the next episode in our series about um, man's role, not man's role, but man's place in the heavens and our discussion of how we got to where we understand where we are in, in the universe. Our Galileo episode? Yes. That one was a, was a mind-blowing episode, and I actually... Um, a couple of months ago, went back and sort of revisited our after talk, and I don't know, sometimes it seems like we're firing on all cylinders, and other times it seems like conversation meanders, and I think that's that's the nature of off-the-cuff conversations and podcasting in general, and that's why I have uh, so many conflicting views about uh, the best way to proceed with our program, because I love speaking off-the-cuff with you and having these casual conversations and uh, I feel like that's what podcasting is for right. and has been for a long time is these conversations that sort of do meander and, and go off topic. But uh, it's truly shocking to me to imagine that uh, just a few hundred years ago, we were in science itself was in this climate. And I, I almost would use science with air quotes because... Modern science, some have said that Galileo gave birth to modern science. But we were at a time where a Polish priest named Copernicus, who, uh, it has been said, probably violated his oath of celibacy that he took to the Catholic Church and had a few skeletons in his closet and was very sort of shy, had very low self-esteem and didn't want to publish his work that the that in his opinion at least the data could be set up in such a way to show that all the planets were orbiting the sun and in fact not all the planets were orbiting the earth and none of the planets were orbiting the earth so copernicus reticus which was a, a friend of copernicus who urged him to publish and a guy named galileo were within a, a couple of decades were really the only three human beings on the face of the planet Earth that realized all of astronomy, primitive physics, and our conception of the universe, uh, and our place within it was fundamentally and profoundly flawed. About three human beings that were really certain of that and had that as a firm conviction, and everybody else who had an affinity for science or astronomy was convinced uh, of something else, was convinced of a fundamentally flawed, uh, perversely incorrect model of the universe. And that's something it's, it's difficult to conceive of today. And I'm not, I'm not making the claim that that's where we are today, but it's so easy for us in our privileged frame of reference to look back on past events and say how foolish people before us must have been in their conception of the world around them. I really like stories like that because it reveals, you, at least when I, when I was growing up listening to history class, I would say to myself, there's no way that we could ever go back to a time where human nature would act that way. And then you move forward into American politics and we're acting that way in a, a completely irrational manner and just like like you you 
hear stories about the Civil War, and you think of how silly it is right. that the countrymen would kill their own countrymen. But like now, I can understand how people could get that upset, and so that's why programs like ours and everything, any other avenue that is telling history is important because it is a reminder of of what our past is and what our capabilities are. I wish I could remember who it was that famously said, history does not repeat itself, but it has a tendency to rhyme. Yes. Yes, very much so. Um, And then next we moved on to um, the military's role in the space race and, and where, where the, I guess the through line between the military and where that turned into the military, I guess. Yeah, and if if I were to describe it in the simplest terms that I could conceive of, you had uh, NACA, which was the forerunner to NASA, which had an extensive amount of military involvement, the NACA. And you actually had, and we talk about this in our uh, Space Race series, where the uh, United States... I think it was the United States Air Force and the United States Navy, if I recall correctly, were competing to to construct the first satellite. And uh, Werner von Braun was on one of those teams, and the other team was sort of a rival team saying, we don't need the help of some former Nazi. We can, the United States uh, military can do it on our own using American ingenuity. And then this rocket uh, rose three feet off the launch pad and collapsed in this fiery explosion that was televised on national tv the vanguard rocket i believe it was Mm. called and the soviet union dubbed it kaputnik (laughs) instead of sputnik anyway uh so the united states military was very much involved and to my knowledge president dwight eisenhower wanted nasa to be a civilian space uh, administration showing the world that we were going to space for purely peaceful purposes, but the United States Air Force as well took a took a very keen interest in all of that for quite some time and still does to this day. It has not, uh, the military's involvement and interest in space never ended. It's still going on. And I confess that I spent a long portion of that episode, which was also a planetarium presentation, on uh, focusing on Project Orion. Right. And that's because Project Orion, I think, is a very obscure tale from American history that has a very special place in my heart because for a fleeting moment uh, after the Sputnik crisis, as it has sometimes been called, uh, Freeman Dyson, the mathematician that worked on Project Orion, probably still one of the greatest mathematicians of the last 100 years, said that the United States government was so panicked in the aftermath of the Soviet launch of Sputnik that they would agree to all sorts of wild and strange plans and schemes. I think he called it, he called them schemes. <laughs> and Project Orion was sort of a wild, strange plan or scheme that they agreed to uh, amidst that panic, but also spent millions of dollars and a couple of years on developing And I still believe, regardless of your feelings about nuclear technology, that Project Orion is, unfortunately, the best option 
that we have if we want to get serious about human space exploration of the solar system. Mm. There are a lot of very tantalizing prospects that exist, a lot of possibilities mm-hmm. that if we spent money on them and developed them, they you know, might very well uh, bear fruit in, in the coming years. But Orion is something that we could have we could have been launching spacecraft. This is a shocking statement, but we could have been launching crews of 200 or 300 people to go on missions to Mars and exploring the outer solar system and the moons of Jupiter in as early as 1962, 1965. And we haven't done it then, and we haven't done it now, and there's no sign that we'll be utilizing that technology to do it in the future. Mm-hmm. And some people would say there are very good reasons why we haven't. But I think that's, that's something that's... Uh, so interesting that it cannot be overlooked yeah. in in the discussion about human space exploration. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we have the next. So we had Project Gemini, which got us to Project Apollo, and then Project Apollo. It's uh, it's next product. What do you call it? Uh, predecessor. The one no the predecessor is the one the that comes before. before. Yeah. So Apollo would be the predecessor to what is coming now. Which is the um, well Apollo? You could say you could argue was the predecessor to Skylab and the space shuttle program. Okay. Um, and the space shuttle program was the predecessor to whatever we're doing in the present day, which is kind of kind of unclear. You know, the the private space race, one could say. Well, uh, n- what I was going to refer to is the uh, I forget the name of what they're because there's this, a really cool guy that is a he was a uh, a Navy SEAL a medical doctor and now he's an astronaut and he got recruited for the new team of 22 of for the next uh i think it was 2019 is Na- nasa's new crop of astronauts yes yes and i forget what they're calling it it's um the artemis project i guess that's what they're calling the next phase of the space race with the goal of going back to the moon it's not much of a race as, as I don't... not race, but the, the mission to go back to the... Yeah, the next phase of space exploration for the United States, I suppose. Cool. I, I say it's not a race because I don't anticipate that uh, China or Russia will land human beings on the moon anytime soon. And frankly, I don't think the United States will uh, on the timetable that they're predicting either. Right. Uh, the guy's name, the astronaut, Navy SEAL, yes. medical doctor, Johnny Kemp. Really cool guy. Johnny Kim? Johnny Kim. Wow. Um, so I don't know. Maybe that's that's where hopefully with the... Oh, and there's also a... Of course, I'm biased, but there's a, a female marine pilot that is also going to be a part of the, the new class of astronauts that are on Artemis, you're, which is cool. You're biased because you were in the Marine Corps. Yes. I don't know if our listeners know that. I... So. Yeah, perhaps we've had new listeners who haven't gone back and listened to the uh, small the detail. Um, so yeah, um, which leads us to our next episode. We are we kind of hinted at this, the discussion about going to Mars with Elon Musk and his. I don't know that that's our next episode. The next episode that we had after that. Oh yeah, yeah yes, yes, correct. Um. 
So we discussed uh, Robert Zubrin in that episode, and then we discussed the the life of Elon Musk and his dreams to have a company that made rockets. Yeah. So can I take a moment to talk about Elon Musk? I know we did it in uh, one of our longest after talks ever. So I've said this before. I'll say it again. I think Elon Musk's ingenuity and his entrepreneurial spirit is incredible. And he's accomplished more more thus far in his lifetime than I probably would if I lived to be 100 years old. However, that being said, uh, I'm... I think he makes a lot of promises that he's unable to keep, such as the promise of orbiting astronauts around the moon by the year 2018, uh, and a lot of other... 2024 is the deadline, so that would be about four years from now, mm-hmm. when he would be landing human beings on Mars, or perhaps cargo on Mars for the first human crew. I think a lot of that is uh, fantasy. And I certainly don't mean to disparage Elon Musk or be personally insulting to Elon Musk. But I would also say it's interesting when we did the episode, looking back, he did some sort of uh, video game that he managed to sell for hundreds of dollars when he was living in South Africa, and he was sort of a child prodigy. And it was something along the lines of the title was Laser Blaster, or just Blaster, I think. And sold this video game for hundreds of dollars about uh, fighting aliens in outer space. And so I think a lot of Elon Musk's views on outer space, particularly in his younger years, were, for lack of a a better phrase, these very nerdy fantasies Mm. rather than actual plausible, objective ideas about human space exploration. Now I would say the two separate categories are beginning to merge Mm -hmm. just a little bit. But at the same time, Robert Zubrin talks about meeting Elon Musk in the 1990s, maybe early 2000s, and saying, these are Zubrin's words, saying, Elon Musk, clearly very intelligent, Clearly has a lot of know-how when it comes to engineering, but knows nothing about outer space and space exploration and aerospace technology. And so there was a lot that he had to catch up on. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, a lot of this, of course, this would be a good segue into our discussion with Professor Alex Rowland. Professor Alex Rowland had this had and has this very dim view about human space exploration is that it's incredibly expensive, it's incredibly cumbersome, and despite everything that we've done the last several decades, we haven't made really any enormous strides that would suggest that human beings are going to be landing on Mars. In his words, he said they're not going to land on Mars within his lifetime, and they're not going to land on Mars within our lifetimes either. I think maybe the truth lies somewhere in between, but I can't help but think in in some respects that there's this kind of nerdy fantasy about colonizing Mars that Elon Musk has that 
might not be reality within our lifetimes and might not be a reality ever. Hmm. And it saddens me to say that, but I, I really truly feel that that uh, might be the objective reality and that other people have fantasies, which human beings have always had fantasies of colonizing far off places in outer space. But the pragmatic reality still remains that we haven't ventured beyond low Earth orbit since the early 1970s. Right. So uh, time will tell, as the old saying goes. Uh, one thing that really struck me, I've been thinking a lot about making a trip to Antarctica. Antarctica is, is very much an item on my bucket list because it is, I think uh, Bill Nye said this as well, it's as close as you can come to visiting the surface of Mars without leaving the planet Earth. And, of course, Antarctica is much more hospitable than the planet Mars. There's oxygen and there's breathable breathable air, oxygen, <laughs> same thing. Now I'm putting my foot in my mouth. Yeah. But um, most countries limit the stays of their scientists on... Uh, a lot of bases in Antarctica, whether it's McMurdo or any of the other stations that exist, two uh, one-year-long stints maximum, and then they send you home. And mm -hmm. you can come back for another year at some point in the future. But there aren't a lot of examples of scientists or civilians or people from any nationality that are staying there for years on end, year-round. And Antarctica... It would be a lot easier to have a permanent human settlement in Antarctica where people are raising their children, where people are having families, yeah. where people are creating communities and cities than it would be on Mars. Interesting. So, yeah. So Elon Musk is proposing that within his lifetime or a similar timetable in the next couple of decades, maybe within the next 50 years, we're going to be doing on Mars what we haven't mastered doing on the most remote parts of the planet Earth. That is an interesting way of looking at it, that we haven't decided, in no way have we made the choice of creating a test civilization in a place where there could be actual repercussions for not being uh, cautious about the environment. To say, and I say that this way, that we haven't put like an actual colony of people to live in Antarctica where if someone accidentally decides to be silly and goes outside in the snow, there could be serious consequences to them doing that. Like they, they do the, I think they do do some trials uh, with potential candidates to be astronauts in like desert areas where they have to wear suits spacesuits or whatever sure but i think a very uh close like you your interest in going to antarctica is because it is a very close allegorical experience to being on another planet in a lot of ways yeah absolutely and and there's uh so there's one in hawaii i believe it's called high seas uh they've done some interesting experiments in antarctica and they've done a lot of experiments just with isolation. Of course, people who winter over in Antarctica, very often the, the ships and the aircraft that resupply a lot of 
the scientists living at outposts in Antarctica are very inaccessible during the winter months. There's mm. about six months where there's not a lot of daylight and you don't want to be landing an aircraft on a sheet of ice where there's no daylight. Right. So that's, uh, that's a, a factor. In the 1950s, they talked about building, uh, cities in Antarctica covered in these these giant domes or sort of biospheres. Mm-hmm. There's also Biosphere 2 in Arizona, which if you're not familiar was this Holly Shore movie. That's Biodome. <laughs> but yeah, kind of the same notion. If you've ever seen Biodome, it's just this massive greenhouse where they sealed these scientists inside and said so we're going to be cut off from the outside world. But the uh, vegetation and plant life within this dome, they're going to be producing oxygen. We're going to try to recycle our air as best we can. We're going to try to grow our own food. And the experiment had mixed results. That's the kind way of putting it. There were cockroach infestations and food shortages. And uh, Polly Shore's fellow scientists were very aggravated with him. Oh, so you're referring to the movie? Because I was gonna—I was thinking. Of no, the... I, I'm actually saying that's what happened with Biosphere too. I just made the okay. Polly Shore reference because I, I can't stop thinking about Biodome <laughs> now. Because I, I, thought I need to go back and read more about it. But I thought that there were some very significant uh, social problems with that experiment as well. Yeah, there's some psychological factors, but. I, that they found doing the experiment, not not theoretical, but the ones that they that they found in like in Biosphere the, Two. Yeah, the way that people interacted in yeah. doing those experiments. Well, when you're dealing with food shortages, for food shortages and cockroach infestations, and struggling to determine whether or not you'll be able to recycle your air into breathable air, there's bound to be uh, squabbles and conflicts and things like that. But uh, in my opinion, I was actually uh, rather surprised when I looked at, I think Mars 500 is the psychological experiment that we cite in our episode about Mars exploration. And that was, I believe, uh, an an experiment done by the Russian Academy of Sciences, Mm. where a group of people were locked inside this confined space for, if I'm not mistaken, it was around 500 days, which is why it's called Mars 500. It wasn't a NASCAR race. (laughs) <laughs> the Mars 500, ladies and gentlemen. But Mars 500 was... So 500 days, that's a long time to spend. Like imagine if uh, you, me, two other collaborators were sealed inside of our studio or recording this podcast uh, for 500 days. It would be it would be very taxing. And a lot of people can easily imagine, a lot of, I should say, a lot of average people could easily imagine, oh, I would go crazy. Oh, I would surely start to lose my grip on reality after that time. But they had a lot of well-trained scientists and people who had been uh, subjected to extensive psychological testing before they went in there. They didn't pick people off the street. They picked people who would be potentially the sort of people you'd want to select uh, in a crew to send on a mission to Mars. And I was actually, this study and a lot of other studies... I was uh, pretty pleasantly surprised that they do talk about conflicts and arguments and problems that people have, but it's all very mild and it's Mm. all the sort of thing that 
you might expect from from social isolation. There's nobody. There's there's nobody who's reenacting the Stephen King novel, The Shining, who's right. you know gone completely insane and is trying to murder their their fellow crew member. A lot of it was just like, oh well, everybody was pretty polite, pretty cordial. Some people seemed a little bit more irritable, and one crew member experienced uh, a lot of trouble sleeping during the last uh, two to three months of the experiment. Now, that's no joke. At sleeping is very important, and you start to lose sleep. You do start to make mistakes. You start to become more irritable. It takes a toll on you emotionally, physically, psychologically. All of that right. is, is very real. But the notion that they sealed people in this environment for you know 500 days, and it was like, well, one person had trouble sleeping and some people were irritable. It's like, if that is really the only danger, then I'm actually a little bit appalled that people are like, well, until we know how people will respond psychologically in, in, you know, in such confinement for extended periods of time, we can't possibly send a mission to Mars. It's like, no, I think we can risk it. I think we can, if that's the danger that people are most concerned about, I think we can risk it. I think it's fascinating to see how many shows and movies are now starting to look at the idea of how you would, how those social interactions would, would happen on sure. a, on an air. Like we watch, we even talk about it in the, uh, in the Mars episode about in the after talk that, silly movie that we we saw together about the two people going in the space colony or whatnot oh uh was it the movie passengers 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 right. with jennifer lawrence right. and uh the other guy but hbo is coming out with another mini series about a similar idea of like this cruise ship thing but it's that uh, like a, a starship of people called artemis and there's going to oh, be oh, it's called Artemis. Yes, and it's going to have that's, that's aptly named. The I suppose. Uh, what? Who are the actors from House? The the grumpy doctor Hugh Laurie. He, he's going to be the the captain of the ship. So oh, well, that should be interesting. It will be an interesting HBO show, but it, it just it's almost like our our common entertainment is trying to prepare people to be ready for this idea of us yeah. traveling to other planets and things like that yeah and that's fair but i think people need to be aware and again ties this into our alex roland professor alex roland's insights and sure. his pessimism about human space exploration is that it's easy to fantasize it's easy to construct science fiction and we sort of go through these cyclical uh I don't know, these cyclical obsessions with space travel that take place a lot. And so in the, certainly in the 1950s and the 1960s, as the space race kicked off, people's imaginations ran wild about what might happen. And we're in a similar period of time right now where SpaceX has ignited a lot of people's imaginations about what might be possible or what might take place in the future uh, but as as my father always very resentfully brings up, he always says, he says, yeah, I grew up in the 1950s and every everybody told me that by now I'd be driving around in a flying car and I still don't have my flying car and nobody's selling a flying car and I'm going to go to my grave having never driven around in a flying car. And yeah, he's right. He's right. That was very much an expectation that people had. And it's 
fascinating to watch something like Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey where people are getting aboard Pan Am spacecraft and mm-hmm. flying to the moon on mm-hmm. passenger spacecraft and Pan Am doesn't exist anymore and there are certainly no uh, other airlines or spacefaring transportation companies taking civilians uh, into low earth orbit let alone to the moon i did uh like the distinction that alex roland made in our interview with him saying that we will probably be conducting a lot of space exploration with zero human involvement it'll all be robotic because of the 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 cost just makes more sense and and it's it's a better i guess monetary involvement to try to send robotics instead of people sure and and i think also his opinion was that it's not only cheaper but it's better objectively i have mixed feelings about that because of course my personal hero robert zubrin disagrees with a lot of that of course robert zubrin is just as biased if not more biased than professor alex roland but uh robert zubrin talks about the nuanced work of field geology and how it's probably more difficult to get robots to do field geology because there's a bit of nuance involved Mm -hmm. and there's uh almost something intangible in the distinction that we make between robots and human beings. Well, it's like if if there was another world war between, say, China and the United States, but the only way that that warfare was carried out was through cyber warfare and robots that were firing at each other and disabling each other, would it still have... The still like would would each side still feel as tied to that conflict as they would if it weren't a tacit like tactile war with people killing other people probably not it would probably be like a video game you know that's a fascinating thought at the end of the day the irony there being that it would be much cheaper financially speaking to sacrifice large numbers of human lives in a conflict, uh, though ironically it would be much more expensive to send large number of human beings to visit other planets. So it's kind of this strange inverse relationship that you bring up. But it's a good point. And I don't know what the the correct answer is. I'm always say I'm I'm very much an advocate of all of the above Mm -hmm. when it comes to human space exploration. There's been a debate uh, with NASA and the United States government about should we return to the moon first or should we go to Mars? If I were forced to pick or choose, I would say Mars should be a bigger priority because I think that would really captivate the public imagination. It's, as Robert Zubrin says, it's where the science is. Determining whether there's life on Mars answers some of the bigger questions, whereas we're fairly confident that there that we won't find microbial life on the moon but microbial life on mars the the jury is still out on that so if i were forced to pick or choose i would say mars would be a bigger objective of course there are some people who talk about uh, helium 3 this 
potentially very valuable fuel source that we could mine on the moon. Of course, that wouldn't involve simply traveling back to the moon or landing or planting a flag. That would involve a uh, really enormous amount of space infrastructure mm -hmm. to be able to mine uh, lunar rock for this, for to convert it to helium-3. So that's uh, a different different discussion altogether. However, I love the idea that within our lifetimes we might send robotic space probes to the outer planets, to places like Europa, a moon of Jupiter that has more water beneath its icy crust than all the Earth's oceans combined, more liquid water, I should mm -hmm. say, than all the Earth's oceans combined. And there's something called the Europa Clipper mission and a lot of other proposed missions. I think if we could really do an extensive exploration of the oceans of Europa, who knows what we might find. And I remember uh, Dr. Fran Bagnall, who worked at the uh, Fisk Planetarium and also worked on the Voyager space probes, the Juno space probe, which is now orbiting Jupiter. She always believed that Jupiter was just a superior destination mm. for scientific missions than Mars. And she felt that Mars received way too much attention. And whether it was looking for extraterrestrial life or whether it was just trying to do hard science and spectroscopy and all sorts of other investigation, that Jupiter was where it was at. It's kind of ironic that... that you know, planets like, or the planet Mars and the moon are these inhospitable environments just because of the climate that's there. Sure. But they aren't, it's not like Jupiter where there's a constant cyclone of wind going on there at all times, making it like you don't have to deal with the climate of Jupiter right. being being involved. Yeah, well, the the funny thing is, is so... We haven't sent a lot of space probes into Jupiter's atmosphere. So obvious, obviously you're right that Jupiter and some of the very intense storms raging within its atmosphere uh, are, are very intense. But we're not sending these space probes into the atmosphere of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, a lot of these outer planets that are extremely gaseous. We're sending these probes to orbit these planets, take some photographs, look at, for instance, the magnetic... Uh, Magnetosphere, oh. the magnetosphere of Jupiter. The Earth also has a magnetic sphere, magnetosphere, this incredibly large magnetic field. In fact, it's so large that Jupiter, which is visible in the night sky a lot, particularly during the summertime in North America, you can see Jupiter is this faint little point of light that looks like a particularly bright star. But if you want to know how big its magnetosphere is compared to the planet, you would have to take your fist and cover up that point of light with your fist in the hmm. night sky. Wow. And that's truly astonishing. So there's a lot of iron in Jupiter. Or something. That oh, well, we, we would have to discuss the, the physics of, you know, having a magnetic field and okay. the, what's, mm -hmm. what the core of Jupiter is made of versus what the core of Earth is made out of and what generates a magnetic field. And I'm probably not the best person for you to, to talk to about that. But anyway, that being said, we're not really exploring the planet Jupiter, or rather the planet Jupiter's atmosphere, all that much. We're taking pictures from a long way off, and we're in the preliminary stages of talking about 
how to how best to explore its moons. Uh, Enceladus is another icy moon that probably almost certainly has a, a, an ocean of liquid water beneath its icy crust. But the problem is when we get to outer to uh, the problem is when we talk about exploration of the outer planets, they're so, so, so far away. At the planetarium, I used to talk about how the Cassini space probe orbiting Saturn is so far away that to send a message back to Earth and have communication, it's uh, a 90-minute long process. It's <laughs> an hour and a half long process because, and that, that's a signal that travels at the speed of light. It's so, so far away. Yeah. And I'd love to entertain the idea of sending human beings there, but that's even more remote than Mars. And one of the reasons we're so fascinated about Mars, not just because of the prospects of finding microbial life on the planet Mars, but because it's fairly close. The only other planet in the solar system that is closer to the Earth than Mars is Venus. And, of course, Venus has surface temperatures of uh, 800 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's basically twice as hot as the inside of your oven when it's cooking a Thanksgiving turkey. On the other hand, people have talked about colonizing Venus instead of colonizing Mars. Now, you laugh, but they said that if you were to be in the upper, upper, upper atmosphere of Venus, it might be similar to the upper, upper, upper atmosphere of Earth. In the very upper layer of Venus's atmosphere, you could potentially wear an oxygen mask, not need a spacesuit, and if you had some sort of blimp or some sort of hot air balloon or dirigible, you could just kind of be hanging out in the clouds and it would be relatively comfortable. It would be the perfect Venetian lifestyle of having to take a ship everywhere you went. <laughs> Um, our next topic was was Pluto, while we're talking about planets on the outer regions. Do you have anything that comes to mind uh, after doing that episode? I think each of these episodes was uh, a journey of exploration for me personally, but hopefully for the audience as well. But for me personally, uh, there are always interesting and pleasant surprises along the way. Before we did this episode on Pluto, I I felt that the International Astronomical Union, um, the IAU's classification of Pluto as a dwarf planet was a bit short-sighted, and I was probably nostalgic for Pluto, like mm -hmm. many people my age. But I was surprised by the fact that the vote that took place to downgrade Pluto, so to speak, to from planet to dwarf planet, was taken at a conference where the majority of the astronomers who had been present at that conference had already gone home. And it was on the last or second to last day of that conference. And that made it a bit contentious. But one of the other things that I thought was very interesting is that a large number of planetary scientists were upset by this vote and said, mm, we don't know if we're really going to abide by this. We think we're, like, in protest. We're just going to continue to publish papers referring to Pluto as a planet because we think the definition is too uh, pedantic. And Alan Stern was one of those scientists who said it's it's too squirrely, it's too pedantic, and mm -hmm. I don't think uh, we're going to do that. So it, it kind of 
And I we, we said this during our after talk with Connor Blunt, that to the average man on the street, it seemed like it seemed like ultimately all the scientists and all the astronomers around the world collectively and unanimously decided that Pluto is no longer a planet and a few fringe nostalgic space buffs got very upset for no reason. And the reality is much more complicated among astronomers in the, in the scientific community. When we talked about black holes, probably the most uh, intensive research topic that we've done thus far. I would like to revisit black holes and I would like to um, eh, have a, a mea culpa moment and say that black holes... We spent a lot of time on general relativity, so perhaps that episode would have been more aptly titled General Relativity or Space-Time, you know, this this fabric of the universe. Simply put, Carl Sagan talks about it as you cannot look out into space without looking back uh, into time. And I admitted to you privately that uh, physics is not my, my strong suit. Astronomy is what I love, and most of the episodes we've done in our podcast have revolved around topics in astronomy. And so trying to get a really good grasp of general relativity enough to present it to our audience uh, was difficult for me. But at the same time, I think you need to really understand general relativity before you understand black holes. And really some of the most cutting edge aspects of black holes, like taking the first photograph ever of a black hole, which is something that happened very recently, something you can you can Google if you want to see that photograph. It was uh, all certainly all over Instagram and all over the news. That was something that I, we didn't even really talk about. And right. I think a lot of the value of our podcast is not necessarily that you can get all of the latest, most cutting-edge space news that there is out there in day-to-day headlines by listening to our program but that you can understand the context yeah. that illuminates it all and makes all of it something that is sort of within your grasp intellectually. And I, I'll i be the first to admit it. i trying not to be pretentious here because I'm not an astronomer. I'm not a physicist. I'm not a scientist, really, at the end of the day. I studied political science, but political science is... It's not really a hard science, in my opinion. So, as much as I like space politics, and the politics of outer space, I think, do make it into our program. But just understanding the historical context of why are people interested in this in the first place, whether it be black holes or any other topic of astronomy, I think that's important to understand before we go further than that. And don't get your hopes up about landing on Mars until you understand the long and hard-fought history of attempts to rally people politically to support a manned mission to Mars and to get aerospace companies and government agencies and presidential administrations to get on board with that. We need to make an enemy out of Mars is what you're saying. No, no, not at all. I think we need to... Uh, oh, that's what I'm saying. It's generally the only the best way to rally a group of people around an ideal is to make an enemy out of something else. <laughs> I see. Yeah. The the war on Mars, just like the war on drugs or yes. the war on terror, yes. will allow a vast expenditure of government money to start flooding into to that enterprise. Yeah. My 
that's that's clever enough. Um, but in in my opinion, I think the enemy is uh, short-sighted politicians mm. or individuals or government organizations that are uh, unwilling to truly commit the political and monetary resources that would be necessary for human beings to explore Mars within this century or within our own lifetimes. And I fully understand that that's a hard sell for a lot of people and that there are a lot of problems right here on Earth that that need to be dealt with. But uh, Robert Zubrin, again, my sort of my new idol, has this this great interview and probably repeats it this phrase several times, but he said, well, there were a lot of problems in Spain in 1492, and today there still are. And the implication being that that's not that wasn't a good enough reason not to explore North America in 1492, and it's certainly not a good enough reason not to explore the solar system in 2019 or 2020. So while we're talking about bureaucratic blunders, we can talk about the space shuttle. So, as usual, I think this is a topic where did over an hour we did over an hour long episode, we had a wonderful guest with which we discussed it and still I have more to say. Mhm. Uh, although some of it might just be reiterating um, previous uh, comments that I made in the episode. Uh, but I, I would just say that the space shuttle was uh, a failed program, a policy failure. And I think personally, it seems very ironic that the space shuttle is featured in so many different children's toys. We see it several different feature-length films and was very much this flagship for NASA and America's space program for many years and yet it is the financially it is the most expensive space vehicle in history and the deadliest uh, vehicle in space history so the you know those facts I think are very much inescapable and it's kind of ironic that they put them they put the space shuttle hand in hand with Apollo 11 is like two of the the benefactors of NASA that we've received. Yeah, and I would say that because the space shuttle was around for decades, it's almost more instantly recognizable than some of the spacecraft that we landed on the moon with. And it's incredible to think that Apollo 11 was half a century ago. So so many people alive today have no memory in their consciousness of this incredible uh, event that uh, historian Arthur Schlesinger called it the most uh, important event of the 20th century. And yet, Space Shuttle, Space Shuttle, Space Shuttle seems to uh, saturate a lot of media, certainly a lot of Instagram uh, content, a lot of Instagram pages, uh, films, television. It's just, it's everywhere. And so... I don't think people fully appreciate just what a, a monumental failure the, the program was and uh, how it really held us back. And I think that's, that's the part that really irks me is, granted, NASA was re not receiving the same funding 
during the space shuttle era as they were during the Apollo era. And that needs to be acknowledged that there were a lot of brilliant people working at NASA who realized once the Nixon administration came to power, uh, realized they just weren't going to have the same enormous levels of funding that they had during the Apollo program. Keep in mind, I believe it was about 5% of the entire federal budget was being spent on space travel during the uh, mid-1960s. Compared to a fraction of a percent right now? Correct. So that's, that's enormous. And I think there were definitely people who worked for NASA and, and saw perhaps the space shuttle could be a bridge to constructing space stations in low Earth orbit, which ultimately it was with the International Space Station, but perhaps used as a stepping stone to bigger and better things, and they just never got the money for it. So I, I do want to acknowledge in some respects that uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. There's probably some sort of really bad punny joke I could make about that, but it, it's an expression we hear a lot. But I would say that there were people like uh, Chris Kraft, one of the uh, mission controllers at NASA, pretty famous guy from the Apollo era, said he was skeptical about building a vehicle that would function as the ultimate space vehicle, sending astronauts, putting up satellites, putting uh, Department of Defense payloads into orbit that he didn't think uh, could be accomplished on, on the first try. And the, the space shuttle was sort of sold as the ultimate uh, space vehicle. And of course, uh, Alex Rowland, who I try to give as much credit as possible to, uh, Professor Alex Rowland, PhD and historian, really from the very early days of the program in the early 1980s, I think was aware that the shuttle wasn't delivering on uh, what was what was promised. And what I say in the episode is that uh, NASA's, I think, deputy administrator said at the beginning that there is only one objective to the space shuttle program to have a reusable vehicle that delivers safe, reliable, frequent, and cheap flights into outer space. And so there's, by any objective metric, that is not what the program did. And another thing that we say in the episode, I'm I'm not a big numbers and stats kind of guy. I'm more interested in sort of the broader narrative in a lot of these historical anecdotes. But I know a lot of people like to quantify things and the reality is that the shuttle cost over a billion dollars for each launch, whereas the Russian Soyuz, which is arguably a lot safer and is still flying today, cost about $80 million uh, to launch. And I say cost $80 million, we're not 100% on whether perhaps the Russian government fudges its numbers a little bit, so we say 80 to $100 million in the episode, but... $80 million is the price that the United States government pays to uh, send its own astronauts to the International Space Station. But decades ago, there were um, people paying uh, $20 million for a flight on the Soyuz, uh, such as uh, Dennis Tito, widely known to be the first, the world's first space tourist, who was, I believe, a former uh, engineer from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, who... Uh, paid the Russians to take him up to the International Space Station so he could go on a little vacation. Is $80 million the current figure with 
the co- like ha- have there been any cost reductions with all the different competing interests in space in space industry as of late? I'm pretty sure that 80 million is the current figure to buy a, a ticket uh, on the Soyuz. And I think the reason why there haven't been any of the cost reductions that you speak of is the Soyuz is the only game in town right now. It is the only vehicle in the world that can take astronauts into outer space. And we have people like Blue Origin and SpaceX working on creating vehicles that could transport astronauts into low Earth orbit, but that doesn't exist Mm. yet. Mm. And so we'll have to see what happens in the future. A couple years from now, that might be drastically different, and I imagine it would be drastically different. But again, so three astronauts actually died aboard the Soyuz in, I believe it was the 1970s. It was a horrible disaster for the Russian space program. The Soyuz depressurized while in outer space. And then we talk about the Soyuz first flight of the Soyuz claimed the life of cosmonaut Vladimir Komarov. So people have died on the Soyuz, but for the last couple decades, no one has died during launch, during re-entry, or in outer space uh, on the Soyuz. And there have been a tremendous number of flights. It was a vehicle that did missions in low Earth orbit, did missions to the Russian space station Mir, and now carries astronauts to the International Space Station. So it's, it's got a very long operational record. And when I say that there haven't been any deaths, there have been some close calls where they had, to, they had to initiate the escape system, which launches the space capsule, the Soyuz capsule, off of the rocket. Uh, at one point, many years ago, there was a very recent case that we might have seen, you might have seen in the news uh, several m- months ago, where they did an abort pretty much at the edge of space. They had to uh, do an in-flight abort and parachute back down to Earth, which they did successfully. So it's a, it's a very good record, and, and you have to imagine if someone came out tomorrow and said, here's this spacecraft that has been proven, we just launched astronauts into space, which vehicle would you want to ride on if you're going into space? Would you want to rely on the one that has already been tested and proved to be uh, extremely dependable? Or would you want to say, oh, well, I'm sure Elon Musk knows what he's doing and SpaceX has already done wonderful things. Let's roll the dice and take a ride for only the first time or second time in human history on this brand new space vehicle. I think a lot of people would say, hmm, not so sure. Be a lot of Elon fanboys that would probably take Elon, but you know, to their own avail, I guess. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, that's true. I can't speak for everyone. And of course, if you, the space shuttle program was still going on and you offered me a ticket on board the space shuttle to go into low earth orbit, I'd probably jump at that opportunity uh, as well. This is a catastrophic program, but yes, I will take a ticket. (laughs) There was actually a case, I think, I don't know if we went into detail on this in our podcast on the space race, our three-part series on the space race, where Sergei Korolyov, this you know, space czar, probably one of the most important figures in human space exploration, had an engineer that was voicing some concerns about, like, oh, I don't know about this new spacecraft. I'm, I'm a little bit uh, uncertain. And so 
Korolyov offered him a ride. He says, well, why don't you go up there and make sure everything's okay and you can fly aboard this spacecraft and become an astronaut and become one of the great heroes of the Soviet Union. And the guy said, okay. And, and that, that shut him up. He was like, all right. Which, which is kind of ironic because I guess it could have gone the other way. He could have said, oh, I'm not going to go up in that dangerous vehicle. But the, the thrill of getting to be part of that grand adventure and the celebrity that came along with that was enough to get this engineer to sort of put some of his grievances and doubts aside and climb aboard. Hmm. So um, one thing that I sometimes during these after talks, I reiterate things that I said in the episode and I'm going to reiterate a point that I made in the episode but I think it's an important one, and that is that uh, NASA Administrator Michael Griffin said if we had just continued to produce Saturn V rockets, they could have, the Saturn V rockets could deliver more frequent launches for about the same cost as uh, the space shuttle. And certainly the Saturn V rocket was not a cheap vehicle to launch, but it was a rocket that was an enormous enough heavy lift vehicle where you can go beyond low Earth orbit, and the shuttle was not such a vehicle. And the rockets that we have now are typically not those those sorts of vehicles where you can carry immense, uh, large payloads, essentially, beyond low Earth orbit. And the, the possibilities really would have been uh, endless. There's something called the Apollo Applications Program, which was the Apollo Applications Program had all these different ideas for returning for longer stays on the moon, launching space stations into low Earth orbit. And we actually did that with Skylab. Skylab was launched on a Saturn V rocket, and Skylab was enormous. I think it had about as much room as a three-bedroom apartment for three men to live and work within for months on end. But the Apollo Applications Program even talked about doing missions to Mars and missions to Venus, orbital missions that could could have taken place in the 1970s. And of course, there was also uh, NERVA, Nuclear Engine for Rocket Vehicle Application, I think it stood for. And NERVA is one that we talk about, a program that we talk about in our Mars episode. And they were talking about perhaps putting a nuclear NERVA engine on the upper stage of the Saturn V and launching it into uh, low Earth orbit to send astronauts to Mars. So, I think that was really a missed opportunity, and I think the Saturn V was an expensive, albeit very reliable, rocket. It's one of the few of rockets that has never had a catastrophic uh, failure in its history. So, I suppose... That's a pretty good summary of where I'm at with the space shuttle program. I'm wondering if any of our listeners out there maybe can leave a comment in our comment section or email us if you're a big fan of the space shuttle and I've uh, drawn your ire. I'd be interested to hear if we could maybe at some point get some someone on that would be a proponent of what the space shuttle was able to accomplish and see what their thoughts were. Cause I'm, I'm, tr I would love to be the, uh, the, the, the red team here, but I, I just don't have any good arguments. Sure. 
I don't think there is. I don't think there is a good rebuttal in terms of cost, which is what the space shuttle was supposed to be. It was this cheap alternative that would be drastically cheaper than anything that came before it, and in reality, it was more expensive mm -hmm. than what came before it. Professor Alex Rowland was a very interesting guest because although he was anti-space shuttle, as I was kind of anti-space shuttle program, <laughs> as I am, he was also very down on the idea of manned space exploration in general, which is an area where I, I do disagree with him, mm -hmm. but also respect his opinion that the, the challenges can't be understated. Well, I think his, his interest is in the reality of probably where space ex exploration will go and and not necessarily in the... Because it almost seems sort of kind of art... It's almost like looking at art and the understanding that we can't really put our finger on what we'll actually be able to discover by solving problems for man to go that long. Sure. But we're going to be solving a lot of problems. Whereas, like, if you want the, like, here's the plan, here's what we're going to accomplish, and really all we have to worry about are robots doing what we're trying to accomplish, then you get that done. And I would also say, as a historian, Professor Roland, uh, as a historian, how should I say this? He was just very much aware of the historical and political realities of human space exploration and those are very big hurdles to clear particularly the politics i wrote a blog post on our blog at university university.space where i just talked about human missions to mars there are a lot of technical hurdles a lot of physical hurdles but predominantly in my opinion it's the political hurdles that have held us back from human exploration of Mars and perhaps other planets as well. And, and those political concerns will continue to hold us back even as technology advances. Mm -hmm. One thing that I would uh, touch on since we're on the topic is reusability. And I read an interesting article that stated some aerospace and astrospace engineers feel that reusability is a myth or a pipe dream or even a scam that reusable spacecraft might never really take off, pun intended. <laughs> they might never really become a routine in, in spaceflight. And the space shuttle was a big experiment. And to its credit, I would say the space shuttle was a reusable space vehicle. Mm -hmm. But what's the point of doing reusability for the sake of reusability if it's going to be more expensive than using disposable vehicles. And Elon Musk certainly has made an enormous investment in reusable boosters with the belief that the space shuttle model is a model that can still prevail, even though the space shuttle was not cheaper. And it really makes me wonder what's going on in Elon Musk's head. One of the interesting things I think I mentioned to you is this strange notion that Professor Rowland was talking about that NASA was kind of lying to Congress and the American public in saying that the space shuttle would reduce costs by 90 to 95%. And Professor Rowland said that the reason he said it was 
a blatant lie on NASA's part is because an enormous amount of launch costs just go to the personnel that you need, the scientists and engineers that you need on staff to conduct a, a launch of a manned space vehicle safely. So unless you're, you're turning that over to artificial intelligence or whatever, perhaps, simply having a reusable vehicle does not solve that problem. And then an enormous amount of money goes uh, in a reusable vehicle, goes to fuel, of course. That's not going to be reusable. Once the fuel is spent, it's spent. And then still another portion of the money goes to refurbishing the vehicle because the boosters that SpaceX lands on these barges, as fantastic as this is to watch, they are undergoing unbelievable rigors and stresses going up into the atmosphere and coming back down that you can't just refuel those and launch them the next day. You have to spend a lot of time and effort refurbishing them. And so you're looking at nozzles, you're looking at all the things that are on the, 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 the end of the rocket that are doing a lot of the work, basically. Sure. And if we get to a point where it's even a little bit cheaper to send things into outer space, to send payloads into low Earth orbit, that's definitely a positive step in the right direction. But I'm skeptical about how much cheaper it will be. And if an organization like NASA can lie to the American people in the hopes of pushing forward their aspirations for human space exploration, it makes me wonder, has Elon Musk, as the head of SpaceX, has he ever been deliberately deceptive in some of the things that he has promised? Or is he just a very aspirational character who is very idealistic, believes in what he's doing, and although he has made some predictions that haven't come to fruition and promised things that he hasn't been able to deliver on, maybe there's also an argument to be made that none of that was done in bad faith, that none of that was done deliberately in an effort to be deceptive or dishonest. But I, I really don't know. And that was, I think that's a, a hard thing to reckon with as someone like myself, who's a huge advocate of human space exploration, is the notion that an organization like NASA is not perfect. And in fact, is deeply flawed in, in many respects. And to some extent, I, I have to admit, NASA is a government organization that is taxpayer-funded, so they can only do so much with the funding that they are given. And we all know the incredible things NASA can do if it's given unlimited amounts, practically unlimited, I would say, Apollo-era levels of funding, 5% of the entire U.S. federal budget. That's what most government agencies would consider an unlimited amount of funding and yeah. support. So. Yeah, that's that's how I feel about the about the space shuttle program and how I feel about reusability in general. I'm deeply skeptical that that's going to be the solution. I certainly hope that it is. I hope that space travel becomes cheaper and more accessible as time goes on. I think that would be wonderful. But I think uh, the jury's out. The jury's out on that. I think that that has us rounding out to an end. Do you have any last remarks about the future of the program and what we should be looking forward to in the next year? 
Well, we've we've got a I've got a lot in store. I should say we've got a lot in store. Uh, we definitely collaborate as partners. But as I said, I I do a lot of the writing on the on these episodes, and it's it's absolutely fifty fifty the the work we put in. But you've given me artistic license to sort of uh, choose the topics. I would love to talk about Big Bang cosmology, which raises this fundamental question of where did this strange universe that we live in really come from and what will its ultimate end be and what you know, any number of questions that will logically arise uh, from that and that's on the horizon and then we hope you'll all tune in uh, in particular in January where we uh, can talk about asteroids and comets because I think they truly pose an existential threat to human civilization. I think uh, Sen- I think it was Senator Marco Rubio gave a speech uh, perhaps a year ago or a year or two ago where he talked about uh, well, the Islamic State, this terrorist organization in the Middle East, poses an existential threat to Western civilization. And it's a class clash of civilizations. And I thought to myself, hmm, existential threat. And there's that line in the uh, Princess Brides that comes to mind. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Mm. Uh, human civilization or Western civilization, whatever you believe that to be, uh, I think is going to continue to exist for quite some time, provided we're not wiped out by an asteroid impact or a cometary impact or a supervolcano. Those are existential threats. Fringe terrorist organizations operating in some of the most chaotic and tumultuous regions of the world are capable of horrible human rights atrocities. But to say that they're an existential threat to Western civilization or human civilization seems like a bit of a reach. And it seems (laughs) like political uh, pandering or exaggeration to me. But we uh, look forward to... All of you continuing to listen to us and putting forth good content for you uh, in the new year. And we wish everybody a uh, happy new year. Into 2020. Absolutely. Weird year. Can't believe I'm living. I'm going to be living in the year 2020. It's going to be really bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully uh, my producer and I will join up again to check in with you at some point in the future. But we'll have to see. Bye, everybody.